I could have the slide for our upcoming Jesus and Holistic Sexuality Seminar. Just before I open the word, I want to make sure that I am bringing an awareness to this event. We have over 30 participants that will be sharing. We will have gathered probably in one place more people finding victory over LGBTQ issues than at any other time in the Seventh-day Adventist Church, along with theologians, physicians, counselors, life coaches. Uh, this is going to be an event that will be very beautiful, invitational, redemptive, practical, and establishing the certainty that the gospel and the inspiration of scriptures is still the highway to life and happiness and a future hope. So I'm asking you to be praying, passing the word along. We'll be enjoying this beautiful uh, week and pastor, parent, uh, pastor, teacher, and elders conference and also coming together live, which is a special program. Thank you. Let's pray. Lord, our lives are yours. We are here to worship. And we are asking, Lord, that our hearts would be transformed, renewed, established. All the things that only you could do, that we could rejoice in the provision you've made for us and be the people you've called us to be. So send your spirit now, lead and guide us, Lord, and may we find joy in this refreshing through the word, through the spirit, and through new commitments. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. This is the morning of our Religious Liberty Sabbath. It will be a full day, so if you're watching online, I encourage you to be here for all parts. At the end of the day, we're going to give away a number of books, and we hope they will be an extended blessing. I've asked the Lord to guide me in what I say and do here this morning. Because I understand that we're living in turbulent times and it is not my desire to bring turbulence to the times. But I would be a false prophet and I would be a false shepherd and I would be a false father and husband and I would be a false son of God if I was not true to both the spirit of the word and the promptings of that spirit relative to the things that are soberly surrounding us. Out in the foyer of this church is a poster that says if it can be questioned, it's science. If it cannot, it's propaganda. Never in the history of my life, and I think I could say rarely in the history of the United States and never at this level, has there been the ability to marginalize, blacklist, demonize, and destroy people for thinking differently. Now we've gathered here of our own free will. The challenge with this situation also is that we live in the greatest consumer society we've ever lived in. Where if you don't like what you heard on this channel, you can go to this channel. And if you don't like what you heard at this church, you can go to a different church. Now woe be unto us, but this is not a new phenomenon. Wesley would lament in his day that so many of the modern and popular preachers were antagonistic to his message, and this grieved his soul. 
And yet I can assure you this, the divine favor of heaven rested upon the man's work and he established a mighty step up in the knowledge of truth. And he left legacy of several churches behind. However, they have deviated from their conference, confidence in the word of God and they find themselves now languishing, caught somewhere between ideology, public opinion, and the Bible is just another point of reference. This is a colossal problem. The age we find ourselves in has abandoned a living trust in God and a confidence in this book as knowledge supreme and excellent above all other knowledge. This is not just opinion, and this is not just another religion. Prophecy tells us this is a destiny, a movement of destiny, and the point is to point people to the character of God so an intelligent could be made, decision be made about life more abundant now and life eternal. Now in the last few weeks, without any solicitation, and amongst many who have thought differently about the last three years than myself, I had two unique encounters. And I'm quite confident that the information flowing from these two individuals was out of a history and perspective different than mine. Now some have sought to attach the concept of anti-science and conspiracy to some of the messages that have flowed from this pulpit. Nothing could be farther from the truth. Honest dialogue, fair-minded disagreement, prayerful dependence upon God, and a commitment to the pursuit of truth are the things that motivate those that are allowed to stand behind this plexiglass desk. Now, the spirit of truth has always been such that an idea can be discussed without emotion, but emotion is rallied to silence, destroy, and marginalize those who hold different ideas. This, my friends, is inconsistent and incongruent with the pursuit of truth on any front, including religion. So the two vignettes that I share with you now I share with you carefully, but telling you that the two people that told them to me began with very different points of reference in regards to the last three years. The first one I know comes from somebody who had fully agreed to and cooperated with the mandates that were in place in their employment. Emergency room physician. I was riding around in the back of a pickup truck on a thousand acre ranch in conversation with him when he had to admit that there is a my words not his pandemic of silence over the negative effects of some of the coercive actions of the past three years. He went on to tell me of a 31-year-old man. I did nothing. He went on to tell me of a 31-year-old man full of blood clots, one in his leg, came into his office, died shortly thereafter as one was thrown to the heart. In his mind, he was completely confident 
that A could be connected to B. The other person was a friend of mine that I ran into amongst several thousand other denominational employees at a significant event. They proceeded to tell my wife and myself how she and her spouse, her husband, had enjoyed a wonderful summer traveling extensively in a place that would have required a serious amount of planning and financial outlay. Then she gave the rationale for her travel. The rationale for her travel was that in her conference, which is not a huge conference, much smaller than the one that this church is a part of this morning, that three pastors in one year had died suddenly and quickly on a Friday night. I've pastored for 30 plus years. I've only known of one pastor in almost three and a half decades that died suddenly. And if over three and a half decades, these men and women who try to teach, preach, and live and model the role of proper health and diet, exercise, and good thinking, Now, here we are on the backside, and we are in a place where the emergency room physician said to me, there is no way that these things are ever going to be picked up and discussed in the public press. Which compels a different venue of discussion and creates a whole new substack, you might say, of dialogue. This morning, I'm going to challenge you in the few minutes I have. The pursuit of truth and the fellowship of Seventh-day Adventism must be committed at a higher level to hanging in the dialogues and recognizing the spirit and the prerogatives of truth and its consequential discussions, sometimes debates and arguments. Now, it is not my intention to create them. It has always appeared to me that truth has been resisted by error and that the spirit of truth can establish itself distinct from the spirit of error by the nobility of its demeanor. So this morning, entitling my message, Caesar with the Fox and the Chickens, Lives, Fortunes, and Sacred Honor, I want to go on a journey. And it'll have to be quick, so you're going to have to do a little bit of your own searching. Take your Bibles and open them up to the Gospels. Recorded in three places, but we'll go to the book of Matthew, Matthew chapter 22. And on the table where these books will be given away is one entitled Civil Government and Religion by Alonzo T. Jones. We'll give these books away after the final seminar this evening by Brother John Gusky. They'll be given away. One will be given per family. We don't have enough of all of these to go to everybody, but there will be one hopefully for most, at least of some form of book. Some of the thoughts I'll share with you are extracted from his book. Matthew chapter 22, a very important dialogue, a very important narrative. It says, Then the Pharisees went, and they plotted together how they might trap him in what he said. And they sent their disciples to him, saying, to him along with the Herodians, saying, Teacher, 
We know that you are truthful and teach the way of God in truth, and you defer to no one, for you are not partial to any. Well, in this, the duplicious and the dishonest at least spoke some truth. It was a trap, so they know they were complete hypocrites, and it was set up for the demise of one who spoke truth. But they did at least get commentary correct in acknowledging that Jesus did not he did not parley the favor of man, especially if it meant the loss of present or eternal good. Tell us, what do you think? Is it lawful to give a poll tax to Caesar or not? But Jesus perceived their malice and he said, why are you testing me, you hypocrites? Show me the coin used for the poll tax. And they brought him a Daenerys. And he said to them, whose likeness and inscription is on this? And they said to him, Caesar's. Then, they, then he said to them, then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And hearing this, they were amazed. And leaving him, they went away. Now you need to know, while we won't go there, that in Luke chapter 20 where this is told, it's connected just previously to the parable of the vine dressers. And you remember in the parable of the vine dressers, the, the, the vineyard is lent out. And different people are sent to get the proper rent from the renters of the vineyard. And finally, the son is sent, and they say in their blindness, if we kill him, we'll become the inheritors. And Jesus says to them, what do you think is going to happen to those people? And they got it. And then they got that it was about them. This follows exactly on the heels of that in Luke's storytelling. Now, if there's a concern I have, and my concern starts at the highest levels of responsibility and works its way all the way down to the parents, is a phrase I'd like to put in your mind called institutional capture. It appears to me as we conglomerate businesses and re-leverage out of the human and American experience any measure of independent thinking or doing, the people are willing to bend their minds around whatever the people who hold some measure of control above them tell them. It's now rampant even in parenting circles, so much so, and you should know this as we anticipate Jesus and holistic sexuality, that the parent who will not gender affirm gender dysphoria is not only an unsupportive parent, but in the minds of many, they are an abusive parent and they are demonized for somehow thinking that their children should be allowed to go through puberty and become an adult since they can't smoke, they can't drink, and they can't join the army until they get that old before they have body parts cut off and hormone blockers. Yes, we're watching a measure of institutional control that is no doubt set up, as we heard last night in Dr. Vine's presentation, to completely capture the mind and then the actions for the homage of man to wrong things. So the elemental question that must be asked is, what does Caesar have a right to? What does Caesar actually control? And what is religious Liberty. For that question, let's go back to the garden, Genesis chapter 3, and let's make sure we know from the beginning that God alone really believes in religious liberty. God alone really believes in liberty, period. Now, there are laws 
And these laws violated created rebels. And rebellion is self-destructive, if not other-destructive. But what I want you to know is that God believes in the free will of man and set the kingdom up in the beginning to make this evident at extreme expense to Himself. So extreme that before the foundations of the world were laid, He went forward knowing the cost that would be extracted. Now the serpent, verse 1, was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And He said to the woman, Indeed, as God said, you shall not eat from any tree of the garden. An insinuation of limitation a suggestion of oppression and improper submission. The woman said to the serpent, from the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat, but from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God has said, you shall not eat from it or touch it or you will die. The serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. Now, built into this storyline is an obvious illustration of a test that involves something that goes into your body. Now, this was food. The unfortunate part was, was that while the food was not poisonous and the result of death was not in the fruit itself, the spirit of questioning, disloyalty, lack of love, and rebellion and faithfulness to God was a spiritual virus waiting to attack the nature of God in man and destroy everything that would follow everything, including choice. Now, if in this situation the test is about self-control, then self-control can only exist as a function of self-autonomy. And right from the very beginning in the experience of the garden, we see that there's a certain piece of real estate that is, devoid, that is devoted to the potential to choose something else, and there is a certain piece of real estate that is devoted to the control of the one made in the image of God. That piece of real estate in which Jesus said he wants to put the kingdom was already in this woman. She had the kingdom about her, she had the kingdom within her, but she had a choice as to whether or not she would surrender the kingdom. That component of her being was hers to exercise authority over. It has always been that way. It will always be that way. The book of Nahum says, long after the fires that cleanse this earth are gone, that every thinking individual, every, in, every being with self-autonomy and agency will know beyond the shadow of a doubt that God is love and they will choose throughout the endless, ceaseless ages of eternity to acknowledge the proper governance of God. But when she took the fruit, the boundaries changed. When she took the fruit, while the garden itself would remain under divine control, preserved for our future in heaven and given back to those who will accept the power of redemption, she not only lost the beauty of the surroundings as they were expelled from the garden, she lost control over herself. And this was a dire strait for both she and her husband who ate of volition, not of deception. It became the new norm that Satan would now rule everything on the face of the planet with the exception of the garden, which would be preserved for a while as a witness 
to a different form of governance and the legitimacy of God. But now Satan, through the spiritual virus of selfishness, would be woven into the fabric of our makeup and we would no longer even have autonomy of self. And the absence of liberty would be exercised in the slavery of man to one who had deceivingly taken the throne. Jesus, however, steps in. And while he could no longer do what he wanted to do at greater expense than anything he had ever done before, he pledges the plan of salvation, which is that though you will now bear the burden of warring against your very self if you should so choose to accept my offer of grace, you can, if you want, still control this piece of real estate. You can find in my ability to crush the poison of the new potentate. You can find in enthroning me in your heart and the assurance of my painful acceptance of the price of your disobedience, you can find still the freedom to choose. In other words, the boundary is now up for discussion and everybody gets to decide, will they in a supposed liberty continue eating the fruit or will they in a new sense of liberty find strength to defy the serpent who has wound his way into the presence of our very nature? The thoughts and the actions of man become the center of the battlefield. There is a new king, his name is Satan, but there is the old king who says you need not serve him. There are to be new ways, ways that are not natural to man, ways of self-control, ways that by measure of autonomy, remember we've taught our kids, be careful little eyes what you see and little ears what you hear, because now decisions that are made over this body temple, over this new enthronement of God or re-enthronement of God is now dependent upon the presence of God within. Now. I will seriously run out of time, so you're going to have to check some of this stuff out for yourself. Now I want to transition to a book that is completely about the time of the end. When you come to the book of Daniel, he's told, seal up the book until the time of the end. And many of us have read the stories in chapters 1, 3, and 6. In chapters 1, we have a story of someone who purposes in his heart that he will not defile himself. He's not going to defile himself with the king's food, his delicacies, or his wine. Now, there are two potential defilements there. One is the defilement of food offered to pagan gods, and one is the defilement of the food itself. Both of these are within the periphery of a conquering king's domain, so he thinks. But in the mind of Daniel, this piece of real estate is to be governed with an expression that glorifies God and preserves clear thinking. And since he's in the midst of a crisis, it appears that many of his friends determine the crisis is sufficient to look out for a different kind of common good. And many of them, it appears, choose to go along with the best offerings of the king. But Daniel and three of his friends say, no. Now, the demeanor and dignity of Christ is living in these men, and they've already found some measure of favor with the prince of eunuchs. One could ask himself, since Daniel had already purposed in his heart, 
What if there had not been such favor? How might chapter 1 have been written? And yet God is there to be faithful to those who are faithful to Him. Now the question to be asked or settled is this. In Revelation chapter 13, we know that before there is a death sentence, there is an economic threatening. And that economic threatening is a refusal to buy or sell. But that's not sufficient to stop the people of God from being faithful. So the next step is the extinguishment of breath. And we know in earth's darkest hours, just like the Passover deliverance in Egypt, some anticipating the decree to destroy as the troublers of this world or of Israel, the new Israel that's come to God, this effort is made to extinguish their very existence. Now, the book of Daniel and the book of Revelation are basically about the same two things. Who are you going to worship and who are you going to obey? So the question comes is this. Is there a progression in the book of Daniel relative to the tests that come to men? Well, we've always been quick to suggest there is. All of our prophecy seminars and revelation seminars, we suggest very clearly there is a progression of persecution. We see it in Revelation 13, and we see it in the book of Daniel. The question is, how far back do we want to go in the book of Daniel? Because in Daniel chapter 3, what we have on the plain of Dura is an enforcement that defies their sense of public expression of worship. It is a violation of the second commandment, and they refuse to do it. In Daniel chapter 6, we see that under a new regime of the Medes and the Persians, it's not just that you have to worship publicly, it's that you cannot worship privately. You can't pray to any other god for 30 days except the king. So the question is, since we have three stories about time, that living in the time of the end, does the first one have any relevance for the people of God? Is there an expression of control over this last little vestige of divine real estate that resides by the direct gift of God in the experience of the one who acknowledges him as creator, redeemer, and restorer? So when Daniel and his three friends find themselves in the very first chapter, is it possible that all the best science of the age and best intent of the governing powers is such to suggest that this is how it will be and Daniel is sufficiently aware of the fact that as a divine right, as a son of God, this component of who he is remains under the divine protection and provision of the same God in whose image this physical, spiritual, mental being was brought into existence. Each of us will have to decide for ourselves. But that brings us yet to one more dynamic. Take your Bibles and turn to the Gospel of Matthew again, Matthew chapter 27. How is religious liberty constituted? How is it maintained? And what should we expect? Now, when I was reading A.T. Jones' book, after he commented on the experience of Daniel chapter 3, he made these statements. He said, here we have demonstrated the following facts. First, God gave power to the kingdom of Babylon. Second, he suffered his people to be subjected to that power. 
And third, he defended his people by a wonderful miracle from a certain exercise of that power. Does God contradict himself? Now, he's building a case. And his case is from the book of Matthew and then on to Romans 13 where we are to be subject to the powers that govern us. Jones will contend earnestly that all Romans 13 does is further explain what Matthew, Luke, and Mark say about giving to Caesar the things that are Caesar. And while I don't have the time to prove it, I'll take a time to explain it. And this is this. When you look at governmental law, it has no power over morality. And you say, well, pastor, what about thou shalt not murder and you can't kill, etc." Jones will take and explain rather carefully that the government's job is to maintain civil authority, and yes, there are moral reasons for it, but true moral authority is a function, and moral governance is a function of God alone who can read, register, and record the intents of the heart. And taking from Matthew chapter 5, Jones will build a case that while the government exercises civil authority, no one would go so far to say the government exercises moral authority. It defines, because of a collective sense and due process, a definition of what is right and wrong, but a person could be very evil in their minds. They could be a murderer, a hater, a resenter, a reviler, but as long as they don't execute murder upon someone, there's no civil penalties. But Jones makes a very powerful statement. The true moral authority rests in the church, in the Word of God, as it reflects properly the teachings of the church. So, when Jones is making the statements, he's effectively bringing to our attention the knowledge that there are limits upon what the government can do. By this it is demonstrated that the power of the kingdom of Babylon, although ordained of God, Romans 13, was not ordained unto any such purpose as that for which it was exercised. And that though ordained of God, and he tells us, Isaiah 39 and Jeremiah both told the nation of Israel, you will be captured. And Jeremiah went so far as to say, it'll be good for you if you surrender. Nebuchadnezzar is my just discipliner of you. Even though this was definitely ordained of God, and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego knew it, there were limits to what the civil government had the power to control. The case I'm making this morning to you is, is that this piece of real estate is outside of their jurisdiction. It shows conclusively that this was an undue exercise of the power which God had given them, that is, Babylonians. And then he goes on to state, by this it's demonstrated that the power of the kingdom of Babylon, although ordained of God, was not ordained for any such purpose as that for which it was exercised. And though ordained of God, here's the point, it was not ordained to be an authority in things pertaining to God and pertaining to men's consciences. Now these are very important points. Exceptionally important they are in this age in which we are living. They've been established by civil law in things like the Nuremberg Code, They've been recognized in civil punishments for things like the Tuskegee experiments. And we've come to a place where it appears that in the name of pragmatism, we might be willing to surrender that which might have been and should have been 
an opportunity to obtain the favor and the excellency of God by the benefits that would have come if we would have said corporately as well as individually, you can come this far, but thus far you shall not come. You see, as one person said to me, had we taken a different tack and suggested that we will not participate in a soft or active form of coercion by economic or educational penalties, we might have become the city set on the hill and we might have been the magnet for all those best and noblest of workers in certain fields, including medicine, that would have attracted to us in an age of retiring nurses and doctors for lack of willingness to comply, we might have become the magnet that would have made us the medical city set on a hill. Everybody needs to think about this. Now, nobody wants to back up and say anybody made any mistakes. And unfortunately, at this time, point in time, it appears that few are willing to discuss. But this was not the habit of our dear Lord Jesus Christ. It was not the habit of the Protestant reformers who paid for our liberties in their blood. And it was not the habit of those men and, and committed people of the early days of this nation who pledged their lives, their fortunes, and their sacred honor. And if there's one thing that everyone must know is that religious liberty and civil liberty are maintained at risk and expense to those who understand their value. And this is an imperative thing. Now let's go to Jesus. Turn, if you would, to Matthew 27. Let's go to Caesar and the fox and the chickens. As certain commentators will state, there is no more contemptuous epitaph or word communicated about an individual than was communicated about Herod Antipas. When Jesus said, go tell that fox, he used, some say simply because it was generic and some don't think so, he used the feminine gender of the word fox. Go tell that fox. Now we don't have the time to look at it, but Jesus does not hide his contempt for the one who took the life of one of the greatest prophets that ever lived. And Jesus shows no fear or cowering. He's going to go forward day one, day two, day three, year one, year two, year three, until he accomplishes his task. Herod has no power over him. Herod is afraid of him. Herod wants to see him. It just so happens in the last moments of Jesus' life before the cross, Herod will get his opportunity. Matthew chapter 27. Jesus is before Pilate. Pilate is conflicted. He can tell by the noble bearing and dignity of Jesus he is guilty of nothing. He can tell by the angst and the animosity of the scheming scribes that they are guilty of much. And he understands that he is under obligation to protect an innocent man. But this he is not willing to do. He finds out that there's a connection with Herod and he sends Jesus to him. Herod has been waiting for this moment. The desire of ages actually says that Herod looked upon Jesus with compassion. And Herod, amidst the crowd of scribes and Pharisees that have gathered, tells Jesus, who will not talk to him, if you will heal someone, you can vindicate yourself and go free. 
They bring in the lame. They bring in the blind. Jesus refuses to do what he did so freely and willingly in different moments because Jesus will not exercise his divine power and prerogatives to liberate himself from the road of suffering. Give unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's. Pilate was the face, the voice, and the civil expression of Caesar. He sought to dish his responsibilities to someone else. Herod gives Jesus the opportunity, and maybe with just a twinge of conscience over what he did to John, refuses to pull the trigger as the executioner on Jesus. Jesus is standing in the courts, and the desire of ages says that all those scribes and Pharisees were fearful that Jesus would do what they had seen Jesus do over and over again. All Jesus needed to do was to take that hand that was full of divine love and beneficence and reach out and grab the hand of that lame person and life would have flowed into their limbs and they would have stood up. Yes, Jesus was surrounded by cowards. Jesus was in the hands of those who had no spine. And the Pharisees were terribly concerned, terrified that Jesus would actually work a miracle and not only their reputation, but the commentary and the desire of ages is even their very lives might be snuffed out. How easily he could have flipped it all over, but he doesn't do it. Now to the last chapters, the last verses. In Matthew chapter 27, looking at verse 33, we come down to this real estate again. It says, and when they came to a place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull, they gave him wine to drink mixed with gall, and after tasting it, he was unwilling to drink it. There's something right up to the very end, and there's something that points into the future, that not only is it that in Daniel 6 you can't pray, and in Daniel 3 you got to bow down, but in Daniel 1, there's something about this bit of real estate that remains under the autonomy of all, including Jesus Christ, to exercise some measure of privilege, responsibility, and witness through, and Jesus knowing, and the commentators will talk about it. This is wine mixed with myrrh. Some refer to it as a drug. It was at least to stupefy the pain Jesus would feel, and some suggest maybe to make those being crucified a bit easier to deal with by those doing the actual crucifying. But Jesus, knowing the valley he's about to walk through, will keep his own sense of clarity of purpose and mind and stewardship over this piece of real estate, the one thing they cannot rob him of. He refuses to drink the wine, suffers for six hours, and at the very end, some suggest perhaps so that he can even enunciate it is finished, he takes what is offered to him on the stick. Now, the interesting thing is that when you think about that six hours of suffering, the cloud has lifted. Jesus has declared himself victor or is about to. Think of all the people surrounding that throne, that is, that cross. They've mocked him. They've ridiculed him. They've tortured him. 
And I had never noticed this before. How sad that deliverance would have to come from an outright pagan. And how wonderful that God still reaches and touches the pagans' hearts. But in the Desire of Ages, this is what she says. I looked in the Bible, I can't find it. I'm not going to live and die by it as absolutely scriptural, but I believe in the same inspiration. You can take it or leave it. But she says it's a Roman soldier that goes to get Jesus his last request for something to lubricate his parched mouth and perhaps give him the ability to speak the final words of victory. You need to understand, religious victory will always be lost when there is an absence of compassion, even if you don't agree, when there is an absence of character, and when there is an absence of courage. How would it have been if any one of the Lord's in the lands of the Medes and the Persians would have said, don't ask Vashti to come here now, everybody's drunk. How would it have been if just one person in Herod's hall would have said, don't take the life of John? How would it have been? You know, friends, how would it have been if all of those signers would have said, I'm for life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. I'm for freedom to worship God and acknowledge the God and the laws of nature's gods and the divine providence. How would it have been if they would have laid anything less on the line than their lives, their fortunes, and their sacred honor? What would we have today? Well, we know that according to Revelation 13, the sands are running out for the United States of America. The tendencies towards papal authority, the exercise of wrong authority. And yes, I agree with what Jonathan Zirkel said last night as he quoted Francis Bacon. Time and not authority is the friend of truth. The one thing that does remain, though, is for the witness that Jesus bore even to those who are taking his life, to be born to a world that's awash in wickedness and convenience, pragmatism, and a supposed collective common good, which is a collective damnation. Character, compassion, and courage. You can't live with Caesar or his representatives in history. You can't do like Herod, who was the fox, with the chickens. You have to live different. You have to recognize the biblical definitions of the real estate that belongs to God if you care to give it and the real estate that belongs to man. May God help us on this Sabbath as we celebrate religious liberty. May we be willing to pay the price. May we know beyond measure what the treasure of liberty is purchased in the garden reestablished at the very end of time in a secular document but it's it's courage and its origins are here yes friends may we be faithful to the one who was faithful to us all the way to the cross 
He had one person who spoke up. He was a thief. <laughs> but he experienced liberty at the end because Jesus' willingness to be subjugated in the wrong way to those who had no right and no reason to snuff out his life.